Alrighty, so uh, before I started the episode, I just wanted to give you a little bit of introduction to uh, what I plan on doing. I know I mentioned this in my last podcast, um, episode 006, with uh, Benjamin Brynielson, but uh, I just, well, before I even started this podcast, I, I wanted to label them uh, 001, uh, so that when I got to 00 episode 007, I would do a bond theme podcast, and uh, the original plan for that was to just cover everything Bond. I figured that might be a little bit convoluted, might be like, yeah, let's be honest, it'd be a really, really, really long podcast. Uh, but then Benjamin Brynielsen said, hey, why don't you just cover uh, one episode or one movie uh, for every seventh episode? I said, Ben, that is a great idea. That way I can keep keep it going. Uh, but not only can I keep this thing that you know I really enjoy going, it's also going to challenge me to see some of the movies I haven't seen. I'll be honest with you. I've only seen all the uh, Sean Connery ones and all the Craig ones. I've started a couple of the uh, Roger Moore ones, but never finished them. But so, you know, it's going to challenge me to watch each, every single film that's been done, no matter how good or bad it is. And then uh, maybe talk about what some of the plot lines were and like the inspiration for them. Uh, but yeah. Every seventh, every seventh episode, it's going to be a new about a new film. But uh, for this one, I'm going to start off with Ian Fleming, who was the author of the uh, the first Bond books, basically the creator of James Bond and 007 franchise, and then transitioned that into how it got picked up from a book to a movie and how Sean Connery got um, chosen as as the OG, the original James Bond, and uh, just dive into that story. And I really, really hope um, I present it very well to you. I'm going to try my hardest to, and I hope that uh, you are as entertained as I am by this franchise and the the history of it and just how it became an iconic figure and character. But yeah, uh, enjoy this podcast. You're now listening to the Lone Wolf, Lone Wolf, Lone Wolf, the Lone Wolf podcast. Hello and welcome to my very first Bond Breakdown. I am very excited to uh, to start this, um, which by the way, hopefully I don't, um, I don't know, have any wasps land on me. I'm doing this in a garage in Alton, Illinois, and it's, you know, it's, it's I think it's May 1st. It's either April 30th or May 1st right now when I'm recording this. Uh, so it's getting a little bit warm, and what happens is all the... The cute little, the cute little bugs come out, and uh, we get a lot of wasps here down here. Uh, not not too fun. They're kind of uh, they're kind of a holes. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if they. I guess they uh, pollinate like like bees, but not as much. I don't know. I just know they like to buzz around and, and be be kind of mean and swarm and sting people. So, um, <laughs> hopefully I don't have any outbursts here. Um, 
by yelling at a at a bee. Um, reason being is when I was a child, I actually, uh, not by a wasp, but I I came back from playing with a friend, and I took a drink of some mug root beer. Uh, shout out to mug. Uh, and when I took a drink, I thought something feels off here. The texture was off, and I thought it was like a leaf. It felt like a leaf. Um, so I went to pull it out, and what followed was a very sharp pain in my in my in my uh, my lip. And I just remember my eyes welled up, and I started bawling. I don't know. I was a kid. I could maybe nine, ten years old. I don't know. And uh, I ran over to my brother, and my brother uh, pulled the stinger out, and. Eventually the tears dried up, but my my lip, my bottom lip, uh, with my jaw, relaxed. You know how your lips tend to separate naturally when you do that. Uh, my bottom lip actually swelled up to my top lip. So, uh, you know, I'm sure I'm probably hyping up the 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 pain, the experience of getting stung as an adult. But that kind of memory is st- uh, stuck with me through all these years. So naturally, I have a uh, the kind of ridiculous response towards uh <laughs> towards insects that sting you actually, and I'll wrap this up here soon because obviously you came here to listen to uh to me talk about you know James Bond, but uh I remember this had to been two three years ago. I was out running out in nature in the in the in the, in the thick of summer. Uh, it was just overall a bad run. I saw a snake slither across my path. Uh, gnats everywhere, and then uh, the icing on the cake was I. <laughs> I got uh, I went past a little bit past my 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 stopping point, and uh, I was just curious. You know, it's it's a it's a cool place called the Nature Institute in Godfrey, Illinois. And uh, first thing that went wrong is I stepped into a. a thick spider web after my usual stopping point so that was like a it's kind of annoying but then I heard some swarming and so I said you know what I'm just going to turn turn back and so I turned back and was going back to you know where my car was which is probably I don't know two miles away and I kept hearing swarming and I kept hearing swarming and so eventually I just freaked out and started running and I kept hearing the swarming this thing was following me I don't know if it was like a, a, a queen wasp or bee, uh, but eventually I was sprinting on a hilly, kind of uneven ground. Thank God, thank God I was wearing hiking boots uh, to give me a little bit of ankle stabilization and traction, but I, I screamed like a little girl. I mean, just loud. I mean, if you, if, if you were uh, far away, you probably would have thought I was getting chased down by some type of some axe murderer or some person who likes to prey on people in the woods um but uh yeah that's my story <laughs> sorry i, I could have made that a little bit shorter but it is what it is um but yeah long story short i appreciate bees but i don't like them um so yeah uh i know i already welcomed you but welcome again to uh the bond breakdown this is episode one and uh i know i said this in in, in the intro but uh uh, I'm just going to start off with the man himself, Ian Fleming, and go into how Bond came into fruition and then how Dr. No came to be. So, 
Ian Fleming. Ian Fleming, the sibling of three brothers and one sister, was born in the wealthy district of Mayfair in London, England, on May 28, 1908, to an English socialite, Mother Evelyn St. Croix Fleming, formerly Evelyn Beatrice St. Croix Rose. How's that for a mouthful? And father, Major Valentine Fleming, who was a member of the Parliament of Henley and a captain in the Sea Squadron of the Queen's own Oxfordshire Hussars. I apologize if I say that wrong. Hussars, I think. Uh, the Hussars Regiment. Unfortunate for Ian, his dad was uh, killed in France in 1917 by German shellfire, uh, and he was only 35 years old. And this happened when Ian was only nine years old. So um, let me just say thank you. Um, I know you're dead. <laughs> but uh, thank you very much, uh, uh, Major Valentine Fleming, for uh, taking your part in helping stop the evil dream that was once Nazi Germany. Um, fast forward. Ian attended Durnford. Durnford? Sorry. I, I'm an American. I don't know how to pronounce all these these fancy uh, English names. Uh, but he, he, he attended Durnford Preparatory School on the Isle of Purbeck in Dorset. Uh, he recalled this time they're not being so, so enjoyable, claiming that he, he couldn't stand the food and that they experienced and that he experienced the cruelty of schoolyard bullying. Fast forward to 1921, Fleming enrolled into Elton College where he excelled in sports and also served as an editor for the school magazine. Perhaps this was one of the first experiences of the craft and the artistry of portraying stories. His mother was persuaded by the ha housemaster, however, to, take a, uh, to have him take a cramp course in order to leave Elton e Eaton. Sorry. Sorry, I think it was... It was either Eaton or Elton. I think I misspelled it wrong. Apologies. Uh... But his mother wanted to leave Eton early and get Ian into the Royal Military College. So she did, and so he went. Uh, but his stay at the military college was, was cut short due to him contracting gonorrhea. I'm sorry, when I, when I was reading this, I had to laugh. And I don't know, maybe I'm just immature. <laughs> um, which, by the way, I wrote as a note, something I'm surprised Bond hasn't contracted in all his days of promiscuity with various women. I mean... Especially back then, I mean, uh, when these were written, I'm pretty sure condoms didn't even exist. So he was just having unprotected sex uh, with women. He had no prior history of God knows where uh, either of them, either of their genitals had been. But I digress. Uh, yeah, so he contracted, contracted gonorrhea. Uh, thus, or then... Uh, fast forward to 1933, where Ian Fleming was spending time in Moscow, Moscow covering the, the Stalinist uh, show trial, which I'm going to go ahead and give you the definition of uh, from good old Google. Actually, it's Bing. Uh, yeah, I have Safari, and I guess one of their things, their main or their go-to browsers is Bing, but... I don't know, kind of like Bing. Uh, I think it doesn't get enough credit. But anyways, a show trial is a public trial in which there is a strong connotation that the judicial authorities have already already determined the guilt of the defendant. 
the actual trial has its only goal to present the accusation and the verdict to the public as an impressive example uh, and as a warning to the other would-be dissidents or transgressors. This doesn't surprise me at all, coming from uh, a, a communist government. Uh, any try to any any kind of, in my opinion, and in my limited understanding of history, any any type of of thing that was portrayed as demo, democratic or that the people were involved was a total charade. It was already it was already. Uh, pre-chosen by the government and by the people in power beforehand. Um, which, by the way, sorry if you heard that. Uh, I'm in the garage and a strong gust of wind just blew open the doors. Uh, so, back to my notes. So, uh, while he was there, he applied for an interview with Stalin, but Stalin couldn't make it and actually sent... Ian, a handwritten apology. And I was just thinking, in retrospect, this must have seemed odd to share an intimate moment via handwritten letter, considering most of the franchise is made of Bond and the MI6, uh, taking down the evil empire known as Soviet Russia. And uh, might I just add um, my personal take. Uh, I, It's 2018. There's people here on American soil that for some reason think communism will work like it hasn't been implemented correct, correctly. It, it's never going to be implemented correctly. I don't care how morally upright you think you are. I still believe that total power corrupts or absolute power corrupts absolutely. That it's it just never going to work. It was implemented several times in the, in the 20th century, led to hundreds of millions of deaths. Um, we should stay as far away from it as we can. It's just, <laughs> it sounds good on paper, everybody sharing everything, but what happens is the government comes and takes everything and the elites and the, the, the people high in government hoard everything and the people are left to starve. And uh, uh, I just can't believe it's 2018. We're having this kind of, we're having to debate this. I mean, we were so strongly against it in the past. But, anyways, back to uh, Ian and Stalin. Um, oh, yeah, something I forgot to add on here. Um, I was actually just, you know, it's one of those rabbit holes that you go down to when you read into something and you, you just Google kind of like random little things. Uh, it seems to me that most of the dictators uh, must have... They were all short. I mean, I maybe at that time that was considered average, but by today's standards, uh, it was c considered short. And who knows? Maybe they all had like severely acute uh, symptoms of a Napoleon complex. Uh, which, by the way, I know I'm contradicting myself here. Um, con Napoleon actually wasn't that short. It was, it was believed that he was five feet seven inches, which, for that time, being a, a French man, it wasn't that short. Uh, I think somebody told me it was like something, uh, some type of armor or something that he wore that just made him, it was it was like an illusion that made him look shorter than he actually was. Uh, but yeah, yeah, Chairman Mao, Stalin, Hitler, uh, gosh, 
I should have written this list down. I had it pulled up on, on my laptop. My laptop's in the house. Uh, yeah, they were all middle of the road, five feet tall. I don't know. Like I said, maybe they're just angry. Angry at the world for for not being blessed with, with good good height or I don't know. But uh, I just thought that, that that was kind of interesting. And I know I'm going back to Stalin. Uh, I, just, I just found it kind of bizarre. I was talking to my brother and he's reading a, um, a volume one of a volume two um, biography about him. And it's, it's super thick super thick book but uh he told me that basically like you know i was thinking maybe stalin just had a terrible experience with his childhood and uh just had a lot to be angry for apparently he didn't apparently he was he came from a pretty well-off family he was just i guess a psychopath and just hated people um i know that's that's very vague but i was surprised like you heard you know you hear stories about hitler and apparently he kind of had an unstable, kind of messed up, uh, dysfunctional uh, childhood, which I'm, I don't condone what he did even after all that. But it just kind of surprised me that you could come from, I guess in that time, some sort of privilege and become, you know, even worse than Hitler. Statistically speaking, even worse. He, more people died under Stalin than, than, did, than did Hitler. But no one holds a candle to Chairman Mao. I think it's 75 to 80 million people of his own people, you know, the Chinese people that, that passed, which most of the communist dictators killed their own people. But, uh, yeah, everyone's like, Hitler, Hitler, Hitler. Don't forget about Chairman Mao. Don't forget about Stalin. Don't forget about the countless others that I can't think of right now. They also played a pretty big part uh, in killing people under, under the communism. Um, which I know this is kind of a, okay, so I know this is kind of a, uh, kind of off topic, but not really. It has to do with Ian Fleming. Uh, I had no idea he was the author of this book. Buddy, be quiet. Shh. Okay, I'm trying to do a podcast here, buddy. I know, I know you're, you want me to come pet you. <laughs> uh, but Ian Fleming was actually the author of a child's book um, uh, called Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And I'm actually going to play the, the theme song here, uh, mainly uh, for my mother. Hopefully she listens to this. And I'm pretty, pretty certain that she'll know every single syllable of, of uh, the theme song. It's talking to us. All engines talk. What's it saying? It's saying chitty 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 bang bang chitty 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 bang bang chitty chitty bang bang 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 chitty bang bang, chitty chitty bang bang, what we'll do near, far, in a motor car, oh, what a happy time we'll spend. Bang bang, chitty chitty bang bang, our fine four fender friend. 
bang, bang, chitty, chitty, bang, bang. Our fine four-fendered friend, chitty, bang, bang, chitty, chitty, bang, bang. Chitty, bang, bang, chitty, chitty, bang, bang. Chitty, bang, bang, chitty, chitty, bang, bang. Oh, you pretty, chitty, bang, bang, chitty, chitty, bang, bang. We love you. And in chitty, chitty, bang, bang, chitty, chitty, bang, bang. What we'll do near far in our motor car. Oh, what a happy time we'll spend. Bang, bang, chitty, chitty, bang, bang. Our fine four-fendered friend. Bang, bang, chitty, chitty, bang, bang, our fine four-fendered friend. You're sweet as a thoroughbred. Your seats are a feather bed. You'll turn everybody's head today. We'll glide on our motor trip. With pride in our leadership. The envy of all we survey. Yet another book. Uh, adapted into a film. Uh, the film stars Dick Van Dyke. Um, and let me just go on to the plot here, um, just to give you some type of of, of context of of uh, maybe just a little bit how more lighthearted it was than the typical Bond films. Uh, give me one second. So here's the plot, Commander. Caractacus Pot, I guess that's how you pronounce it, uh, is an inventor who buys and re- renovates an old car after gaining money from inventing and selling whistle-like sweets to Lord Scrumptious, spelled S-K-R-U-M-S-H-U-S, uh, who happens to be the wealthy owner of a local confectionery factory. Confectionery? Um, I think that's just another word for like sweet treats. Uh, the car, a Paragon Panther, was the sole production of the Paragon Motor Company before it went bankrupt. It is a four-seat touring car with an enormous bonnet or hood. Uh, after the rest- restoration is complete, the car is named for the noises made by its starter motor and the char- characteristic too loud backfires it makes when it starts. At first, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang is just a big and powerful car, but as, bo- as the book progresses... The car surprises the family by beginning to exhibit independent actions. This first happens while the family is caught in a traffic jam and on their way to the beach for a picnic. The car suddenly instructs Commander Pot to pull a switch which causes Chitty Chitty Bang Bang to sprout wings and take flight over the stopped cars on the road, which, uh, wouldn't that just be lovely? I've never been to L.A., but I'm sure many people in L.A. who have watched that film probably wish they could do the same. Uh, you know, I've, the closest I've got to that is like St. Louis. I've never drove in Chicago or any like major, what I would consider major city and, and thank God for it. Uh, at least up until now, I mean, I may move, may move to Atlanta or somewhere and, and have to deal with that. But, um, so Commander Pop flies them to Goodwin Sands in the English Channel where the family picnics, swims and sleeps. While the family naps, the tide comes in, threatening to drown them. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang wakes them just in time with a hiss of steam. At the car's direction, Commander Pop pulls another switch, which causes it to transform into a hovercraft-like vehicle. 
They make for the French coast and land on a beach near Calais. I am so sorry. I I just... <laughs> I probably should have looked into how to pronounce these places before, but... So bear with me on my pronunciation. Uh, so... Uh, from Calais, they explore along the beach and find a cave booby-trapped with some devices intended to scare up intruders. At the back of the cave is a store of armaments and explosives. The family detonates the, ca- the catch of explosives and flees the cave. The gangsters, gun runners who own the ammunition dump, arrive and block the road in front of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. The, great- the gangsters threaten the family, but Commander Pot throws a switch which transforms the car into an airplane and they take off, leaving the gangsters in helpless fury. The Pots stay overnight in a hotel of- in-, in Calais. While the family sleeps, the gangsters break into the children's room and kidnap them and drive off towards Paris. Chitty tracks the gangsters' route, or route, uh, wakes Commander and Mrs. Pot, and they drive off in pursuit. The gangsters are planning to rob a famous chocolate shop in Paris, using the children as decoys. The Pot children overhear this and manage to warn the shop owner, Monsieur Bonbon. Chitty arrives in time to prevent the gangsters from fleeing. From fleeing, the police arrive and the gangsters are taken away. As a reward, Madame Bonbon shares the secret recipe of her world-famous fudge with the pots, and the two families become good friends. Chitty flies the family away to parts unknown, and the book implies that the car is yet more secrets. Now, as I was reading that, it occurred to me that there was a little bit of trace of, of Bond there. Um, the kind of pull a switch here, hit a button there, something magical happens and saves your ass. Uh, kind of like Bond, magical watches, pins that explode, etc. Uh, and they do all that gadgetry to defeat the good guy and to get out of a, a sticky situation. So, back to Ian Fleming once more. I don't know, I just found these fascinating. I found... You know, just digging into some of his other works and uh, just kind of his personal life to be to be fascinating. Okay, I am so sorry. Yet another thing I found interesting, um, and I I just couldn't avoid it. It was uh, it was too good not to, to not bring up in this podcast. Um, and I promise, I promise, if you're getting annoyed, you're like, oh, just get to the point. Next Bond breakdown will be a lot more, a lot more direct. Um, I'll be doing from Russia with love, and I'll just explain where the inspiration come from and explain my thoughts on the film and uh, I guess the plots and all the stuff that makes the film the film. And uh, yeah, but yeah, I just had to cover Ian Fleming and. What he went through and things he went through to, to uh, make Bond what it is. So it's going to be a little bit more, a um, little more detailed. A lot more words being spoken into this podcast. Um, but when I was doing my research, I found out that Christopher Lee uh, was a distant cousin of Ian Fleming. And speaking of the military and Bond, the military Bond and Christopher Lee, Christopher actually used some of his World War II. Uh, experience to convey a more accurate representation of what being stabbed in the back sounds like. Uh, 
to give you some context, there's a scene where Gandalf and his fleet are talking to, to Saruman. Saruman? I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I, I have all three Hobbits and have all three Lord of the Rings. I'm just not like a huge fan. And I'm not like obsessed with pronouncing stuff right, as you can already tell. Um, and also, I'm I'm going to uh, just put the audio of the clip in here. But uh, nonetheless, uh, Saruman slaps uh, Grima Wormtongue, who is up on this large tower, at least in the film, uh, just because Grima's just trying to. Uh, kind of persuade him to think otherwise because he's trying to uh, help Gandalf and and the hobbits kind of uh, destroy destroy the ring. Uh, so yes, uh, Sar- Saruman slaps Grim Wormtongue in which, out of anger and disrespect, Wormtongue pulls out a blade then proceeds to stab Saruman in the back. Instead of screaming out loud, like it is portrayed in in a lot of films, overacting and such, uh, Christopher Lee actually let out a short but forceful breath of air. Um, and like you're gonna hear in the in the, in the audio, uh, uh, he told Peter Jackson that he learned that from singing War. And I just thought, like. That's incredible, just to bring that kind of traumatic personal experience um, from war and portray it in a more, and use that as a tool to portray a more realistic, uh, I guess, scene, a more realistic way a stabbing would sound and go. Um, which, by the way, I'm, I may just do an entire podcast on Christopher Lee one of these days. The dude's just fascinating. I mean, t- what a total, a total badass. As far as the creation of Bond, Bond was supposedly taken from all the individuals he met during his time in the Naval Intelligence Division. And sorry if I didn't fill in the gaps from, you know, his college time until then. Uh, and the look of Bond was said to resemble Hoagie Carmichael, which was an old time, uh, an old time singer, and whose song I'm going to put at the end. I just out of curiosity, looked him up, and I thought, I love it. It has that old vintage, like, recorded in some, I don't know, just like, shed. I don't know. It has that old-timey feel to it. It, it. The song on YouTube sounds like it was ripped off of a, a vinyl player. Um, I just pictured it in, like, a... Uh, it playing on a vinyl in, like, some smoke-filled club room. Um... But as far as the specifics of what Bond was supposed to look like, uh, Bond was supposed to be a, or rather is, a Scottish man uh, who's six feet tall, 168 pounds, with steel blue, steel blue eyes and high cheekbones. A good-looking but mysterious man. But if you listen to, or if you watch documentaries and just listen to clips, um, Bond was also Ian as well. I mean, that kind of described Ian as well. Um, Kind of his looks. uh, Ian projected his desires um, of his ideal self in Bond. Um, As far as Bond goes, uh, 
He is a fictional character, obviously, and is a member uh, of a of a nonfiction group called MI6, which is a secret intelligence service of the United Kingdom that specializes in uh, forward, foreign intelligence and has its headquarters in London, England. Uh, now, for my just little like personal thing on on London, I really hope they get their stuff together. And I try not to get too political, but they ban knives and guns. And so it just leaves the good people of, of London without any sort of way whatsoever to protect themselves against crime. I really hope people wake up to the fact that people need to defend themselves and that, that um, criminals don't really care about putting bans on stuff. It's like signs to say no smoking. People are going to smoke there. People just, w- rules are going to be broken. And making them illegal to the good people, it just, it's not. It doesn't work. I, I'm, let me just be honest. It doesn't work. Um, but yeah, um, I just explained kind of where Bond came from. And the name itself actually... Um, uh, came from a book that Ian Fleming was was reading while he was in his uh, in his uh, special made Golden Eye Resort in Orcabesa Bay, Jamaica. Uh, he was reading a book called uh, Birds of the West Indies, and the author of that was was James Bond. He said the reason why this stuck stuck out stuck out to him. Excuse me. Uh, was because he just wanted something that was that was plain, which I th- I think is kind of funny. Uh, or rather, he said that he wanted something that was bold yet plain, which I think is kind of funny. It's like Bond is like the total opposite of of plain. He's he is bold, but he is very indulgent and quite exquisite in in every way. Um. As far as Ian Fleming's writing style, I actually uh, looked online and um, pulled up some quotes. Uh, This is what Fleming said of his work. While thrillers may not be literature with a capital L, it is possible to write what I can best describe as thrillers designed to be read as literature. Uh, He named Raymond Chandler, Dashiell Hammett, Eric Ambler, and Graham Greene as influence. Uh as influences. Uh, William William Cook in The New Statesman considered James Bond to be the culmination of an important but much maligned tradition in English literature. As a boy, Fleming devoured the bulldog drumming tales of Lieutenant Colonel H.C. McNeil and the Richard Haney, Haney, uh, Haney or Haney, these English names again, (laughs) uh, stories of John Buchanan. Fleming's genius was to repackage these antiquated adventures to fit the fashion of post-war Britain. In Bond, he created a bulldog drumming for the jet age. Umberto Eco considered Mickey Spillane to have been another major influence. And in May 1963, Fleming wrote a piece for Books and Bookman magazine in which he described his approach to writing Bond books. Quote, I write for about three hours in the morning, and I do another hour's work between six and seven in the evening. I never correct anything, and I never go back to see what I have written. By following my formula, you write 2,000 words a day. Benson identified what he described as the Fleming sweep 
the use of hooks at the end of chapters to heighten tension and to pull the reader into the next chapter. Sorry. Uh, the hooks combine with what Anthony Burgess calls a heightened journalistic style to produce a speed of narrative, which hustles the reader past each danger point of mockery. Now, I think that probably the journalistic approach um, was probably, imagine, largely influenced by Ian's. Once again, I'm sorry. My dog saw a dog or a postman. <laughs> I didn't promise a perfect podcast, okay? Give me some slack. Um, but I imagine uh, his time in the war and just, you know, that was way before the age of being distracted by social media. Um, you wrote down your thoughts. You were probably a lot more introspective back then um, than we are now. We're where we can just drown on our thoughts through an Instagram feed or pointless post on Facebook. Um, as far as the, the style of Bond, uh, when it comes to writing, uh, it can be broken down into six themes. And they are Britain's position in the world, effects of the war, camaraderie, the traitor within, good versus evil, and Anglo-American relations. As far as Britain's position in the world, the Bond books were written in post-war Britain when the country was still an imperial power. As the series progressed, the British Empire was in decline. Journalist William Cook observed that Bond pandered to Britain's inflated and increasingly insecure self-image, flattering us with the fantasy that Britannia could still punch above her weight. This decline of British, British power was referred to in several of the novels. In From Russia with Love, it manifested itself in Bond's conversation, conversations with Darko Karam. When Bond admits that in England, we don't show teeth anymore, only gums. The theme is strongest in one of the later books of the series, the 1964 novel You Only Live Twice. In conversations between Bond and the head of Japan's secret intelligence service, Tiger Tanaka, Fleming was acutely aware of the loss of British prestige in the 1950s and early 60s, particularly during the Indonesia-Malaysia confrontation, when he, and, when he had Tanaka accuse Britain of throwing away the empire with both hands. Black points to the... the, the <clears throat> Black points to the, the... Fuck. Shut the fuck up, you stupid dog. Black points to the defections of four members of MI6 to the Soviet Union as having a major impact of how Britain was viewed in the U.S. The last defections was that of Kim Philby in January 1963, while Fleming was still writing the first draft of You Only Live Twice. The briefing between Bond and M is the first time in the 12 books that Fleming acknowledges the defections. Black contends that the conversation between M and Bond allows Fleming to discuss the decline of, of Britain with the defections of the Profumo affair of 1960. With the defections and the Profumo. With the defections and the Profumo affair of 1963 as a backdrop, two of the defections had had taken place shortly before Fleming wrote Casino Royale. And the book can be seen as the writer's attempt to reflect the disturbing moral ambiguity of a post-war world that could only produce traitors like Burgess and McLean. By the end of the series in the 1965 novel, The Man with the Golden Gun, 
Black notes that an independent inquiry was undertaken by the Jamaican judiciary, while the CIA and the MI6 were recorded as acting under the closest liaison and direction of the Jamaican CID. This was the new world of a non-colonial, independent Jamaica, further underlining the decline of the British Empire. The decline was also reflected in Bond's use of U.S. equipment and personnel in sev several novels. Uncertain and shifting geopolitics led Fleming to replace the Russian organization Smirsch with the international, international terrorist group Spectre in Thunderball, permitting evil unconstrained by ideology. Black argues that Spectre provides a more. Black argues that Spectre provides a measure of continuity to the remaining stories in the series. A theme throughout the series was the effect of the Second World War. The Times journalist Ben McIntyre considers that Bond was the ideal antidote to Britain's post-war austerity, rationing, and the looming premonition of lost power. At a time when coal and many items of food were still rationed. Fleming often used the war as a signal to establish good or evil in characters. In For Your Eyes Only, the, vi the villain, Hammerstein, is a former Gestapo officer, while the sympathetic Royal Canadian Mounted Police Officer, Colonel John, served with the British under Montgomery in the 8th Army. Similarly, in Moonraker, Drax is a megalomaniac German Nazi who masquerades as an English gentleman, and his assistant, Krebs, bears the same name as Hitler's last chief of staff. In this, Fleming exploits another British cultural antipathy of the 1950s. Germans, in the wake of the Second World War, made another easy and obvious target for Brad... Germans, in the wake of the Second World War, made another obvious and easy target for bad press. As the series progressed, the threat of a re-emergent Germany was overtaken by concerns about the Cold War and the novels changed their focus accordingly. The third theme of a Bond book, camaraderie. Periodically in the series, the topic of camaraderie or friendship arises, with a male ally who works with Bond on his mission. Raymond Benson believes that the relationships Bond has with his allies add another dimension to Bond's character, and ultimately to the thematic continuity of the novels. In Live and Let Die, agents quarrel and leader represent the importance of male friends and allies, seen especially in Bond's response to the shark attack on Leader. Benson observes that the loyalty Bond feels towards his friends is as strong as his commitment to his job. In Dr. No, Coral is an indispensable ally. Benson sees no evidence of discrimination in the relationship and notes Bond's genuine remorse and sadness at Coral's death. The fourth theme of a Bond book the Traitor Within From the opening novel in this series, the theme of treachery was strong. Bond's target in Casino Royale, Le Chivre. Once again, terrible pronunciation, and I should know better. It's Le Chivre? Le Chivre? Le Chivre? I don't know. I know who the character is. He was, uh, he was the guy who had the bleeding eye in Casino Royale, uh, portrayed by Mads Mikkelsen. But I just, I forgot how to pronounce his name. I apologize. Le Chiffre, or Le Chier, however you pronounce it, was the paymaster of a French communist trade union, and the overtones of a fifth column struck a chord with the largely British readership. As communist influence in the trade unions had been an issue in the press and parliament, 
especially after the deflections, the, the defections of Burgess and McLean in 1951. The traitor within theme continued in Live and Let Die in Moonraker. The fifth theme of a Bond book, Good versus Evil. Raymond Benson considers the most obvious theme in the series to be good versus evil. This crystallized in Goldfinger with the St. George motif, which is stated explicitly in the book, quote, Bond sighed wearily, once more into the breach, dear friend. This time it really was St. George and the dragon, and St. George had better get a move on and do something, unquote. Black notes that the image of St. George is an English rather than British personification. And finally, on to the sixth theme of a Bond book, Anglo-American relations. The Bond novels also dealt with the question of Anglo-American relations, reflecting the central role of the U.S. in the defense of the West. In the aftermath of the Second World War, tension surfaced between a British government trying to restrain its empire and the American desire for a capitalist New World Order. But, Fim- <clears throat> but Fleming did not focus on this directly, instead creating, quote, an impression of the normality of British imperial rule in action. Author and journalist Christopher Hitchens, which if, if this is the Christopher Hitchens I'm aware of, rest in peace, you're a good man. But Christopher Hitchens observed that the central paradox of the classical Bond stories is that although super... Although super, <laughs> forgive me. Although superficially devoted to the Anglo-American war against communism, they are full of contempt and resentment for America and Americans. Unquote. Fleming was aware of this tension between the two countries, but did not focus on it strongly. Kingsley Amos or Amos, in his exploration of Bond, in the James Bond dossier, pointed out that leader. Such a non-entity as a piece of characterization, he, the American, takes orders from Bond, the Britisher, and the Bond is constantly doing better than he. For three of the novels, Goldfinger, Live and Let Die, and Dr. No, it is Bond, the British agent, who has to sort out what turns out to be an American problem. And Black points out that although it is American assets that are under threat in Dr. No, a British agent and a British warship, HMS Narvik, are sent with British soldiers to the island at the end of the novel to settle the matter. Fleming became increasingly jaundiced about America, and his comments in the penultimate novel, You Only Live Twice, reflect this. Bond's response to Tanaka's comment reflected the declining relationship between Britain and America, in a sharp contrast to the warm, cooperative relationship between Bond and Leader in the earlier books. And not only is the Bond franchise one of the longest running, uh, it's also one of the most profitable um, franchises in film history. Um, So they've had 24 films, and over its entire span, uh, it's grossed over $7.04 billion. That's, That's nothing to scoff at. And has also produced video games, merchandise, all the, the, the things you would expect to come from a, a, uh, a big franchise, which there's some of those, like, in my opinion, those hipster people like, oh, the big, the big companies are just, they're, they're pimping these out for, for money and pushing products. And I'm just thinking, well, yeah, 
if you if you spend a whole bunch of money and energy and passion into a project and it just blew up there's whole all kinds of things that people just loved about it wouldn't you try to do your best to cater to that to start selling i don't know bond ties bond watches bond whatever i don't know like i can see the other side too like you think they're just pushing your product and they don't really the the film's a a second thought uh but i don't know i'm just saying i excuse me i understand the business side of it too uh you want to make as much money off of it as possible so that you can hopefully um, not only treat yourself with that, but also invest that money into further projects. And Bond is actually so popular that a spoof of Bond uh, was created in the form of Austin Powers, which happened to be another insanely successful franchise. And that I hope, I hope they bring that back some one of these days here soon i uh i don't know i'm nostalgic about it i i grew up with those films and i love just just the the slapstick comedy and but it wasn't until um i really sunk my teeth into the bond films which i admitted in this intro i've only seen all the way through the connery and the, the daniel craig ones but uh I just thought it was it was so funny how they it was obvious they took influences from Bond but portrayed it in a funny way and actually um I watched um it was either interview or a, a segment from a documentary where Daniel Craig was talking about how um or actually it might have been actually no I think I know exactly what it was I bought an old issue of GQ I believe where they had Daniel Craig and I think this was after the release of Skyfall uh, and uh, they were referencing back to um, him getting chosen as Bond and whatnot and he basically said that uh, the three movies that they made with Austin Powers they just totally made a mockery and just tore apart every idea and perception you had of bond and so they thought crap we have to uh we have to really drastically change who bond is and i'm really glad they did that because um i you know i didn't see it so much in quantum of uh, or i'm sorry in casino royale or quantum of solace but I definitely seen it in skyfall and inspector they they take a v way more serious tone um which they do in Quantum of Solace and Casino Royale. I guess just uh, Sam Mendes, the director of Skyfall Inspector, did a much better job on 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 uh, portraying the realism of the situations that he's in, and a lot of that is is in part to Roger Deakins and his. Uh, I'm sorry, Roger Deakins and Hoyt Van Hoytema. Uh, Roger Deakins direct or er, photographing Skyfall and Hoyt Van Hoytema uh, photographing. Spectre. They just did a really good job on using real locations and enhancing the uh, the environment with CGI. Um, but yeah, I uh, I'm just really glad that Daniel Craig and and the people uh, in charge of Bond noticed that, and I think they've they've elevated uh, 
the Bond franchise to a whole new level uh, that they probably thought themselves they couldn't do. It's kind of like with the whole Dark Knight trilogy and Christopher Nolan. He said he, he wanted to make the Dark Knight a little less comical, more more real, and use real locations, uh, enhanced, you know, the small de- details with CGI, and what happened was magic. You know, I, I hate to sound like a snob, but I refuse to watch... Um, I refuse to watch any of the, any any of the Batman f- movies made after the Dark Knight trilogy. It just like he he elevated it to such a such an amazing level that I just feel like I'm compromising when I go back to the theater and watch like a Zack Snyder Batman, which I'm no n- like nothing bad on Zack Snyder. Three Hundred was amazing, but I don't know. I just I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm too close-minded when it comes to that. But speaking of Christopher Nolan, uh, it seems to be a, a a theme running through this podcast. I I mention Chris and like uh, my little rants a lot. Christopher Lee and now uh, Christopher Nolan. Um, there's rumor that he may uh, direct the 25th one, but then I also heard rumor that uh, I think it said Danny Boyle or another English filmmaker might be uh, directing the 25th. I personally would love if he, if it was uh, Chris Nolan or Christopher Nolan. And maybe he could even reconnect with uh, Hoyt Van Hoytema on this one uh, because he had just got done shooting a movie with Hoyt Van Hoytema called Dunkirk. Uh, what an amazing film. I actually went to see that at the Omnimax in the St. Louis Science Center. Uh, the screen, so you basically sit back at a, at an angle and it's projected on a dome. The screen is literally at the bottom and where I was sitting with uh, my two friends, the screen was literally behind you. Like, that's how big it was. And it was projected in 70 millimeter film, which uh, I didn't realize, like, what was so special about that. Not only is it wide, is it a, a wide showing, but IMAX 70 millimeter is 11K uh, resolution, so that's just like insane. Uh, but yeah, that's that's one of the rumors. I do hope it comes true. Uh, I think that would be just absolutely fantastic if that would have happened. I would just be overjoyed. I'd be like a little a little a little boy going into a candy shop if I heard the news, the official news that that's what happened. Especially with Daniel Craig, I just think he could push that much more of a of a a um, performance out of out of him kind of like he did with uh christian bale and and heath ledger in the dark knight and tom hardy uh in the dark knight rises even though on their own they were all three just amazing actors now ian's wife and chartress chartress uh did not approve of, of casino royale and did not want um the novel to be dedicated to her she thought it was filth with this description of sadism sexual deviancy and other vices that were considered taboo at that time in culture. Now, for my personal take, I'm not against traditional values uh, in any way. I think they're good to have if you want to build healthy, healthy relationships and maybe someday start a family. Uh, but I'm glad over time we've gotten more accepting of daring art and less dogmatic or puritanical about it. Um, which was, you know... Uh, his wife's reception is the way a lot of uh, a lot of critics um, portrayed it, or 
wrote about it, sitting in a smoke-filled room with a cigarette hanging from the end of his black holder, which was pretty much synonymous with him. He was always smoking, always... Uh, I'm quoting some of his family members. He always was drinking, always popping pills, uh, which I asked my brother. I said, why, why does it seem like a lot of writers seem to have these vices that are just terrible for them? Um, and he said basically because uh, he thinks that some of the best writers suffer from severe anxiety and depression, and they typically turn to substances like that to kind of, I guess, uh, sedate the pain, sedate the anxiety. And uh, who knows? I've I've never done it. I have no desire to get plastered and, and write, but maybe that helps them uh, just focus more and just write and, and put all their heart and soul on the paper. But nonetheless, in that smoke-filled room in the GoldenEye Resort, in Orcobesa Bay, Jamaica, Fleming wrote his first novel titled Casino Royale. And one, one critic in particular, and I'm not sure exactly uh, which one it was, but they described it as a marshmallow with hair on it, which I thought was kind of a... <laughs> I just thought, I just pictured that, and I was kind of disgusted by it, but I was, I was also kind of amused by it. I just thought that was kind of a funny way to, to describe a... Uh, to describe a book, but the people, the real people, and I know these critics are real people, but they think, especially over time, I think just with the advancement of, of, of the internet, uh, it shows that these people don't speak for the people for the most part. Um, but yeah, the people love the books. They thought, my God, these are, we've never read anything like this before. Um, and I'm sure not only for for men, but for women, it was there was something just insatiable about insatiable about Bond, and they just they couldn't read it fast enough as they dive into these stories of this this masculine man who saves the world and and gets to lay in bed with any woman he pleases, and it's just the man's man. And the same goes for men. I could see men who. They just want to escape whatever reality they're in or find that kind of masculine idol to look up to. And so Bond is it. Um, and so what happened was, you know, even though his wife didn't approve, his critics, you know, they didn't really care for it. The, the book just blew up. It blew up, absolutely blew up. And the rest is history. I think Bond is the... Not novel-wise, but um, film-wise, it's, it's actually the longest-running franchise, um, and which I know I'm hopping ahead a little bit here, and I'll eventually, I'll eventually get to uh, Doctor No. But uh, the first film was was um, released in in 1962, and um, I know Daniel Craig is at least coming back for one more, and I know I'll, I'll probably repeat this when I eventually get to Spectre. And uh, which was the the most recent uh, film uh, released in 2015. So, uh, and it's still actively going. It's not officially shut down. So it's 2018. So that's 56 years, right? I think so. Yeah, 56 years, which is is pretty impressive. I mean, 
you know, with the with with all the stuff economically and all the challenges artistically and just all the crap that happens in the world, the fact that something's able to not only survive that time but thrive, to just be to not lose its popularity, I th- I thought was absolutely fascinating. But I don't want to get too ahead of myself, so let me take take it back to uh, who got Bond started. Um, two two main two the two big players in uh, getting Bond started were Harry Saltzman and Albert Broccoli. Uh, just like many people out there, they they read it, but uh, these two in particular were absolutely just obsessed, absolutely obsessed with with the book. Uh, Harry Saltzman, uh, one of the two producers, uh, was a Canadian, and he came from a cir- cir- circus background. A circus background. There we go. Uh, so people believe he was the one responsible for Br- uh, Bond's grandiosity, uh, such as the over-the-top stunts and whatnot. As far as the gadgetry of Bond is concerned, uh, that came from Fleming's personal experience of messing with. Uh, gadgets in this time in the military. And the second producer uh, was Albert Broccoli, nicknamed Cubby, uh, who was an Italian-American born in the borough of Queens, New York. Uh, Albert's family actually uh, were responsible for bringing Broccoli to the United States. Uh, Thank you very much for that. Um, Which, upon further research, because my mind is just constantly curious of everything, no matter how uh, small it may appear. <laughs> um, broccoli has all kinds of benefits. Benefits like preventing allergic reactions, boosting the immune system, protecting your skin, preventing birth defects, lowering blood pressure, eliminating inflammation, and improving vision. Wow. God knows we need all of that with the incredibly unhealthy, sugary, and carb-loaded American diet, which I am not... Uh, you know, I'm, it's not like I'm not on that. <laughs> I certainly need to shape up my diet better, but I'm guilty. So I don't want to sound like I'm like demonizing the American diet because I'm just as guilty as the rest of you. But yeah, Cubby Broccoli, I just thought, you know, that's an interesting name too. I, I can see how people found him to be very approachable, which apparently he was. Uh, his name was inviting rather than intimidating. And... Even though these producers were from two, two totally different backgrounds and ethnicities, it was the character Bond and the binding, binding aspect of art through story that bonded, no pun intended, actually rather pun intended, um, <laughs> uh, them together, bonded them together. They both had an equally powerful passion to translate the words on the page to the screen and in the way that would match their vision and the incarnation of Ian Fleming through Bond. Broccoli, like Saltzman, also liked the circus atmosphere that a movie set could bring. He would often show up to the location early and take in the viewing of camera gear being set up, the makeup being applied, tents being propped up, actors just reciting their lines, etc., etc. Both of the producers were obsessed with the Bond novels. They knew upon first reading of them, they immediately wanted to take them, to make them into films, thus bringing it into fruition. 
On June 1961, Fleming sold a six-month option on the film rights to his published and future James Bond novels and short stories to Harry Saltzman. Towards the end of the option, screenwriter Wolf Mank- Mankiewicz introduced him to Broccoli. They hit it off. Then, Saltzman and Broccoli formed Eon Production. Eon's utmost priority being the making of the first Bond film. A lot of studios rejected them, but they eventually reached a two-year deal with United Artists, giving them the financial backing they desired. The budget for the first feature was $1 million, which, with inflation, would equal roughly $8.2 million in today's money. That was a pretty big budget at that time and a big financial risk, considering the ahead-of-its-time content. They had originally intended to, fl- to film Fleming's novel Thunderball first, but Kevin McClory took Fleming to the High Court in London for breach of copyright over the book, and so they decided to film Dr. No first, which happened to be the sixth novel. Uh, not the first. The first was Casino Royale, but we, we got a little bit uh, before we can get to that. Uh, <laughs> that's actually That was the first film portrayed uh, by Daniel Craig in 2006, I believe. So yeah, we got a little bit of time before we get to that. Um, now the investors of the, the first Bond film wanted Bond to be American, perhaps someone well-known and masculine like Cary Grant. But the producers insisted on staying true, true, to, true to the depiction. Excuse me. Picking an unknown actor who we now know as the legend Sean Connery. Ian Fleming and the, ha- and the investors were not too happy about their choice. But Harry and Cubby were persistent on Sean Connery, which we now see paid off in big, you know, that paid off pretty big time. He, in my opinion, was born to be Bond. He was strikingly handsome, muscular, and had a cadence and tone to his voice that made him unique, and is still <laughs> made into impressions 50 years plus after the fact that he was introduced to the masses. Uh, I know I find myself, you know, just with my friends, I'll, I'll just do like the yesh. Just, I don't know, it's fun to do. Like I said, very unique. Um, but what ultimately sealed the deal on Sean Connery being the choice was when Cubby Broccoli asked his wife during a, uh, a screen test if she found Connery to be sexy, in which she replied, yes, he is very sexy. That sealed the deal for him as he highly value, valued his wife's opinion, as all men, married men should. Now, fast forward, we're into the production of Dr. No, the first film of many. The pressure was on the shoulders of the big guys, Broccoli, Saltzman, of course, but also on the director, Terrence Young, who was a directorial embodiment of Bond. The flashy clothes, good alcohol, and beautiful women. The pressure was also on for people more behind the scenes, like production designer Ken Adam who needed to establish an elaborate visual style to propel the series into the stratosphere. And this is what he did. For a man who has the desire to drive fast cars, jump out of planes, all while fighting the enemy, then his environment needs to match his ambition. These elements combine with the timeless orchestration of John Barry's orchestra and the other songs on the soundtrack proved to be well worth the time, money, and effort put into Dr. No as it went to gross $59.5 million in the box office, equaling close to $500 million in today's money. Eon stood for everything or nothing, while Harry and Cubby gave everything and got everything in return. 
Now, as far as the production design goes, this is what production designer Ken Adam had to say about the production of Dr. No. The budget for Dr. No was under $1 million for the whole picture. His budget was uh, €14,500. So, taking his budget, he filled three stages at Pinewood uh, Studios full of sets while they were filming in Jamaica. It wasn't a real aquarium in Dr. No's apartment. It was a disaster to tell you the truth because we had so little money. We decided to use a rear projection screen and get some stock footage of fish. What we didn't realize was because we didn't have much money, the stock, the only stock footage they could buy was of gold, goldfish-sized fish. So we had to blow up the size and put a line in the dialogue with Bond talking about the magnification. I didn't see any reason why Dr. No shouldn't have good taste, so we mixed contemporary furniture and antiques. We thought it would be fun for him to have some stolen art, so we used Goya's portrait of Duke... Goya's portrait of the Duke of Wellington, which was still missing at the time. I got a hold of the... He quotes, I got a hold of a slide from the National Gallery. This was on the Friday. Shooting began on Monday, and I painted the Goya over the weekend. It was pretty good, so they used it for publicity purposes, but just like the real one, it got stolen while it was on display. Now, on to a couple other things that make a Bond film what it is. And that is having the evil yet charismatic adversary. And one of the many vices Bond has. Women. Yes, the Bond girl. The girl who is clever enough to charm Bond, but can't resist the presence Bond has. The actress who portrayed the first Bond girl was a Swiss actress and model by the name of Ursula Andress. Now, I haven't seen all the Bond films, I'm not going to lie. But I can tell you, out of the ones I've seen, she's definitely at the top when it comes to her beauty. Um, she was a total bombshell of a Bond girl, and in 2003, the scene of Andrus emerging from the water in a bikini topped Channel 4's list of 100 sexiest scenes of film history. And the bikini she wore was sold in 2001 at an auction for $61,500. It's, uh, yeah, kind of creepy, but also, I guess, it'd be kind of cool <laughs> to brag to your to your, uh, your boys, like, hey, I got you know, I got her. Uh, I got her bikini downstairs. Um, in Entertainment Weekly and IGN also ranked her first in the top ten Bond babes list. Now, on to the adversary, Doctor No. Doctor No is a brilliant scientist with an implied Napoleon complex, and an example of the mod scientist trope. He is a self-described unwanted child of a German missionary and Chinese girl of a good family. He later became treasurer of the most powerful criminal society in China. In this case, the Tongs. He then escaped to America with 10 million of Tong gold bullion. He specialized in radiation, which caused him both of his hands. His hands were replaced with crude bionic metal ones. Nose hands have great strength. He can crush a metal figure with them, but are lacking in manual dexterity, which leads to his demise. Now... Finally, on to, the, on to the plot of Dr. No. And like I stated earlier, it was the sixth novel of the Ben franchise. Franchise. I guess they wanted to start in the middle like Star Wars, even though they came 15 years before Episode 4, A New Hope, a new hope came out. The plot goes, John Strangeways, the British MI6 station chief in Jamaica, 
and a secretary are ambushed and killed. The assassins steal documents related to Crab Key and Dr. No. In response, M, the head of MI6, instructs Agent James Bond to investigate strange ways, disappearance, and to determine whether it is related to his cooperation with the American Central Intelligence Agency, a.k.a. CIA, on a case involving the disruption of rocket launches from Cape Canaveral by radio jamming. On his arrival at Kingston Airport, Bond is picked up by a chauffeur claiming to have been sent to take him to government house. Bond determines him to be an enemy agent and, after having him evade a car following them, bests him in a fight. Bond starts to interrogate the chauffeur, who kills himself with a cyanide capsule. At Strangeway's house, Bond sees a photograph of a boatman with Strangeways. Bond locates the boatman named Coral, whom he recognizes as the driver of the car that followed him. Bond, after powering Coral and his friend Pussfeller, meets Coral's passenger, Felix Leader, a CIA agent on the same mission as Bond. The CIA has traced the radio jamming signal to Jamaica, but has not determined its exact origin. Coral, who is insisting lighter, who is assisting lighter, reveals that he had been guiding strange ways around the nearby islands to collect mineral samples. He also mentions the reclusive Dr. No, the owner of Crab Key, an island rigorously protected against trespassers by an armed security force. In Strangeway's house, Bond finds a receipt from Professor R.J. Dent concerning rock samples. Bond meets Dent, who says he assayed the samples for Strangeways and determined them to be ordinary rocks. Dent subsequently visits Dr. No, who expresses displeasure at Dent's failure to kill Bond and orders him to try again with the tarantula. Bond survives and sets a trap for Dent, whom he captures, interrogates, and then kills. Using a Geiger counter, Bond detects radioactive traces in Quarrel's boat where Strangeway's mineral samples had been. Bond convinces a reluctant Quarrel to take him to Crab Key. There, Bond meets the beautiful Honey Rider, dressed only in a white bikini, who is collecting shells. Ryder leads Bond and Coral inland to an open swamp contained by radiation. After nightfall, they are attacked by the dragon of Crab Key, which is, which is in reality an armored tractor equipped with a flamethrower. In the resulting battle, Coral is incinerated by the flamethrower. Bond and Ryder are taken prisoner, decontaminated in Dr. No's lair, and rendered unconscious with drugged coffee. Upon waking, they are escorted to dine with Dr. No. After dinner, Ryder is taken away and Bond is beaten by the guards. Bond is imprisoned in a holding cell, but escapes by crawling through an air vent. Disguising himself as a worker, he finds his way to Dr. No's control center, which contains a nu- nuclear which contains a nuclear pool reactor. As the American rocket lifts off, Bond overloads the reactor and knocks Dr. No into the reactor pool, killing him. Bond finds and frees Ryder, and the two escape the island in a boat as the entire lair explodes. After the boat runs out of fuel, they are rescued by a leader who arrives on a Royal Navy ship. As Bond and Ryder kiss, Bond lets go of the ship's tow rope. Now... Onto my final thoughts. Overall, I absolutely love the film. The cars, the tailored clothes, the women, the exotic locations, 
And going back to the masculinity of Bond, I also love that uh, that masculinity that Bond bro- brought on screen, along with his charisma and good looks, that ultimately set the bar of what James Bond should be. I also love the chemistry they had on screen with the women and even his enemies. As far as the bad, the only thing I could say is that through my eyes, some of the stunts and fight scenes were comical uh, and probably could have had better timing and cutting in the cellular film, but like, who am I? Never shot anything on film, nor do I want to shoot on film. Uh, Digital is just so much more practical and cheaper, but nonetheless... Uh, I do have to realize that this was 1962. I'm watching this in the 2010s. The technology and experience in filming those things weren't as advanced in 1962. And I'm sure for the audience at the time, were absolutely thrilling to watch on the big screen. Well, I think that this is it for the first episode of the Bond Breakdown here on the Low Wolf Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope to see you on the Bond Breakdown Episode 2, where we'll be covering the, the second film, from Russia with love. Have a great day, everyone. Poor buttermilk sky, I'm a keeping my eye peeled on you. What's a good word tonight? Are you gonna be mellow tonight? Oh, buttermilk sky, can't you see my little donkey and me? We're as happy as a Christmas tree Heading for the one I love I'm gonna pop her the question That question Do you, darling, do you do? It'll be easy, so easy If I can only bank on you Oh, buttermilk sky I'm a-telling you why Now you know Keep it in mind tonight Keep a-brushing those clouds from sight Oh, buttermilk sky Don't you fail me when I'm needing you most Hang a moon above her hitching post Hitch me to the one I love Papa, the question, that question, do you, darling, do you do? It'll be easy, so easy, if I can only bank on you, oh, buttermilk sky. I'm telling you why, now you know, keep it in mind tonight, keep brushing those clouds from sight, oh, buttermilk sky. Don't you fail me when I'm needing you most Hang a moon above her hitching post Hitch me to the one I love You can if you try Don't tell me no lie Will you be mellow and bright tonight Oh, buttermilk sky